the ClickZ podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. Programmatic is just the use of tech and data to deliver marketing. Because marketing now should be seen as a tool for business growth, not just a cost. This is the ClickZ Digital Marketing Podcast and I'm joined by Wayne Blodwell. We'll get the lowdown on programmatic advertising and hear why it's the future of marketing. My guest on the ClickZ podcast today is Wayne Blodwell. Wayne was one of the UK's earliest adopters of programmatic in 2010, where he traded programmatic campaigns in the earliest DSPs. Wayne has since created and scaled two agency trading desks, created a marketing technology consultancy within a global media agency, and led the overall programmatic efforts for Dentsu Aegis in the UK. Last year, Wayne founded the Programmatic Advisory to provide non-conflicted advice on how programmatic can achieve business goals for companies. Wayne was nominated by an industry panel for Digital Trading Leader of the Year at the Drum Digital Trading Awards in 2016. So, Wayne, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here. And it's great to have you. And we're going to get into programmatic in a minute. But first, I just wanted to find out a little bit more about you and how you got started. I first got into digital advertising in 2008. And then I jumped into my first programmatic role in late 2010, where I was a campaign trader in some of the earliest DSPs, so in right media. And since then, I've co-founded one of the UK's first agency trading desk and where the actual trading desk itself sat within the media agency. And then most recently I ran programmatic products and activation for Dentsu in the UK. Um, and with regards to the, you know, what I'm doing now, the programmatic advisory, I mean, the name kind of gives it away, but we are essentially expertise consultants. We don't have a list of things we do. So when I go speak to prospective customers, what we try and do is really understand the business and their goals and therefore their marketing goals and then we pull together our expertise and we create bespoke service solutions for our clients. Our clients they range from marketers, some of the most advanced in the world, through to tech companies and publishers. Currently we are five people in the UK and we're expanding every month and we are launching in New York later this year. Um, so it's incredibly exciting, it's a good time to be um, in programmatic um, and I think more so given that, you know, the way that we're positioned is completely non-conflicted. We only provide guidance and advice. We don't buy any media on behalf of clients. That hopefully puts us in a well-trusted position to make good recommendations for our, for our customers. Great. And yeah, I think, as you say, it's been a really exciting few years within that programmatic space. And you've really been within programmatic since the beginning. So. I wondered whether you could just maybe tell us what have been the biggest changes that you've seen in that sort of seven or eight year period, which is actually quite a short space of time, really. What have been the biggest changes and, and do you think we've reached a level of maturity now? I think we are a long way away from reaching um, the maturity levels that some might expect. Um, I still think, you know, to echo your point, seven years is still within the context of industry uh, evolution still relatively early um, but I think the biggest things that I have noticed or the industry has noticed over the past kind of seven eight years I think number one is the targeting capabilities through data so the way that we can now kind of recognize consumers who may interact or may purchase or may view things on behalf of brands has definitely improved uh, and definitely got better 
and is only improving. I think the second part is we've seen a consolidation of media partners. So what I mean by that is some of the early kind of digital plans would be 100 line items with you know varying budgets against each, and you'd be literally you know receiving faxes and IOs, sign them and send them back. And that used to be one of my jobs would be to literally print them off, sign and send back, which is fairly an arduous process. And then, you know, the, to kind of relieve us of some of that uh, legacy process, we've also seen the rise of technology. I spoke about how I was in some of the earliest DSPs um, and they were solving for automation, trying to alleviate some of these pain points, which really were just operational headaches. Um, and that was like an early stage of digital technology and we've seen that even further through you know things like brand safety and um, things like interesting talking tools around context dynamic creative so really and i think we'll continue to see technology uh, usage kind of rise in in marketing in general so i think those are three things really targeting has improved we've seen you know, media partners being transacted through technology, and then also the rise of technology. I'm conscious that some people listening to the podcast will have heard of the word programmatic. They'll be aware of sort of how it works. But as we have you on the podcast day and you're a programmatic expert, I wonder whether we could just get a really quick explanation of exactly what programmatic means. Could you give us just a quick definition? Programmatic is the use of technology and data to deliver marketing. So essentially it's where buy which could be website formats or formats within print or tv meets demand which is advertisers or the agencies they use through technology and those technologies also allow buyers and sellers to use data so they can correctly value the supply or demand so really programmatic is just the use of tech and data to deliver marketing Great. That's a really simple definition to get your head around then. And I suppose that means then that it's not just limited to online banner advertising. A lot of people will probably immediately think of banner advertising when we talk about programmatic. But increasingly now we're seeing it applied to other types of media, other channels as well. I think the way that people think about marketing is you have these things which we call channels. So that might be the email channel you can market to consumers through. Maybe it's through Facebook, Twitter, display banners, video, mobile, whatever it might be. But really, what programmatic does, it almost removes that concept of a channel. Because what you're trying to do is understand an audience that an advertiser wants to reach through data. And then use technology to be able to serve them the ad when you think, as a buyer, it's most appropriate. So I think we'll start to see more and more channels, what we consider channels today, become programmatic. The caveat I would say is that each of those you know, channels are, have their own idiosyncrasies. They all have their own weird things that have been established through years of trading. The things like out of home, you've got tons of formats, uh, loads of different creative variations. There's no standardised, and there's no ad server. Um, within TV, you've got different broadcasters, you've got different regulations. So they all will have to 
Um, they will all find a way to use data and technology to better enable buying and selling. However, they'll do it in their own way. Thankfully, the ambition is there because you know both buyers and sellers can realise the benefits. So it's definitely it's definitely really exciting see how these channels become enabled programmatically. Absolutely. And what do you think is the driving force behind some of the the changes and the innovation that you're seeing? Is it being driven purely by the brands or is it being driven by the agencies more? That's a really good question because I think innovation is coming from kind of all aspects of the industry. I think publishers are striving towards increasing the money they can make. Um, Advertisers are trying to drive their business outcomes. Agencies are trying to do that on behalf of their, their advertisers. But I think actually where a lot of innovation in this space particularly comes from are the technology companies. So I think over the years we found that you know maybe someone from an advertiser or an agency or publisher has recognized the gap in the market and has therefore gone, well, to fulfill that gap, we need technology to enable it. So for example, one of the earliest DSPs was founded by someone who used to work at Yahoo. They recognised there are better ways to, to sell Yahoo imagery and for advertisers to connect to it. You need the technology, the, the foundations in place um, before you can really do anything. The technology, I think, is really what's, what's driving the innovation. However, whilst there's a company that fulfills a gap, there's probably four or five that aren't. And what about the people in the agencies the people I suppose you're dealing with a lot who are actually buying the media, using these tools, using the technology. Do you think that they have had to learn a whole new set of skills? And if so, what are those skills that somebody needs to be able to um, do programmatic? Definitely think they've had to learn new skills. I think some have learned or learned quicker than others. So I think that, you know, the, the way that lots of these roles used to sort of play out would be we're working with an advertiser they're spending one million pounds per year how do we sort of divvy that up so we can drive business performance and then you sort of wash your hands of it almost and then you run like a campaign like a post campaign analysis wrap up at the end but now really the the planning has got more detailed so planners need to start thinking about audiences thinking about segmentation thinking about how do they connect to publishers who have data? How do they collect the client's data? Um, so, that's the, so, the, so that part of the process has got more granular. And then once you sort of press go, now for an agency, that, that isn't the end of the process. That's essentially the start of the process. You then have teams internally who now need to start pulling levers on a hourly, daily, weekly basis to make that kind of investment work. That's an extra service that agencies probably haven't had before. And then the insight you now can provide back because you've been doing this in a more granular way. It's far more interesting than it used to be, say, 10 years ago. So I think the agencies um, have gotten up to speed in many cases, and some are still getting up to speed. But the skill set really in all their employees should be uh, more data-focused, a better understanding of data, whether that's insight and what sort of things works in the campaign, or whether that's can I use my client's website data or their mobile app data to better inform 
the targeting that I apply in my campaign. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think. I remember when I was at IDM, the IDM stands for the Institute of Direct and Digital Marketing, and we seem to have come full circle in a way because direct marketing or data-driven marketing we used to be seen as the sort of the poor relation within the marketing mix and looking at spreadsheets and going through and getting all the data was seen as terribly unsexy and unglamorous. But actually in the last decade, that whole approach, that data-driven marketing marketing has fueled by programmatic and the rise of all the technology we've been discussing has really brought it back. So the same principles of marketing apply, being able to identify your audience and find the most effective channels and then reporting back and optimizing. But I think what's what's changed is the the volume of that data and the speed at which you can get that data um, and then the accuracy of that data. So those things have, have kind of added a, a, a sort of a, a pressure, if you like, um, but also they require specific technical skills to be able to use the tools to get hold of that that data absolutely the way that you think about segmentation previously would be you've got a spreadsheet you've got column a is one sort of sector of data if for example has shopped and stored previously that'd be a segment now that kind of spreadsheet is expanding into hundreds of columns of things you might know about consumer and then when do you use that data to actually target them so i, I agree it has come full circle and and it's just largely driven through the volume of data so in a minute, we're going to get into more specific questions around how programmatic is shaping the publishing industry and the advertising industry and kind of what's coming next in a bit. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Hi there, it's Tim here, and I've got a favour to ask. If you're enjoying listening to the Clixy podcast today, could you please leave us a quick review? Just navigate to the review tab in iTunes or Stitcher and either share some stars or leave a comment. Not only would I be really, really grateful, but this also helps other people to discover the podcast. Thanks so much in advance. Now, back to the podcast. So before the break, we heard a bit about the history of programmatic and how the skills required have changed and evolved. But there's still some fundamental principles there, um, which which have always applied to marketing. Now I'd like to move forward a little bit and just find out how programmatic has been changing the industry. The industry which it's really affected has been publishing and clearly publishers have, have had a bit of a tough time over the last few years from lots of different um, lots of different areas. But Wayne, what do you think is the number one challenge that um, publishers are facing and is programmatic part of the problem or the solution? I think the number one problem publishers are facing is yield, so how much money they can actually make. So fairly recently the Guardian forecasted they'll lose £90 million this year. Daily Mail saw an 11% drop in revenue last year. And News Corp saw a 2% drop in revenue in Q1 this year. So those are quite extreme examples because they are traditional publishers. But they also have huge online presence. So really, it's how do publishers get remunerated in a way which is fair and so that they can continue to create content which consumers want to read and want to you know, share and engage with. So really, you know, when we talk about yield, it's you know how do how do kind of the how does the seller meet the demands of the buyer? Like, can these publishers create products or formats that mean those buyers are willing to pay a premium, and therefore the publishers can increase the cost they make? I think you're finding some publishers 
are pointing their finger at the middlemen who can't take undisclosed fees. So those are the kind of the middlemen who distribute their content. So someone like a Google or a Facebook or an ad exchange. Um, but in general, the reason why they're pointing at these kind of intermediaries is because they're kind of cutting in how much money they can make. So, so really the big problem the publishers have to try and solve for is how they can make money in particularly in digital. And what's been the impact of programmatic on that? If you go back to 10 years ago, publishers were able to sell their inventory, um, a lot of it at a premium price, a lot of it would be direct still, um, whereas now uh, um, it's quite rare to see um, that much coming from, from direct sales. A lot of it's now sold programmatically, and obviously that's had a huge impact on the, the cost um, per meal uh, coming right down. Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, in the early day with programmatic, um, it was largely about having a non-one-to-one relationship. So as I mentioned earlier, the early media plans, we'd have 100 partners on a plan, we'd sign all signed IOs. And what programmatic did initially was remove that kind of one-to-one relationship and the buyer would just go, well, we can just buy you through an ad exchange. But now, interestingly, buyers are realising they can get access, by having a one-to-one relationship with a the publisher, they can get early access to custom content, or they can, you know, they're not thinking about it as though it means just better rates, it means viewable formats, it means beta testing, it means custom audiences, which can be passed via these private deals. So I think there's many challenges that publishers have to try and solve for so they can make money. But I do think given the drive on the buy side to become more programmatic, programmatic has to be part of the solution for publishers. How do they surface up their ad opportunities to buyers? How do they bring data on top of that? That has to be delivered bioprogrammatic and it's one of the reasons why we're seeing you know kind of top tier publishers investing in programmatic teams internally to really try and you know help monetize what these publishers have do you think there's um, a growing move towards setting up premium marketplaces or alliances like pangea um, to bring the publishers together in a way that they can then command a premium for their for their inventory i think private deals, um, as we describe them, where you know, if you're a buyer like Mercedes and you want to have a direct deal with Autotrader, then private deals via programmatic are becoming more prevalent. I think you know, some of those um, initiatives like Pangea or Somatica, as also, sorry, Somatica have, haven't really landed as well as I think some expected. Um, and I think that's because you know, buyers can can buy that inventory anyway. They don't have to buy it from those sort of um, those initiatives. Um, so I'm not sure if these alliances are definitely the future um, in terms of how in terms of how a buyer will access them. But I really strongly believe in collaboration, and I think in publishing, if you can pull the efforts of these top tier publishers and get some really smart people around the table all with very similar problems and you can kind of put politics to one side you know you would think that together they can 
work out the best way to solve this. We've been talking about some of the challenges of programmatic. Another big challenge which we've seen over the last month or so is the way in which the advertising is blind in the sense that um, the advertiser puts the ads up there, doesn't really know what sites they're going to land on because they're programmed um, to just follow the audience wherever the audience goes. And then, of course, those brand ads appear on unsavory sites, extremist sites, um, and the the brand advertisers get very upset about that, understandably, because they have their brand appearing next to um, someone they don't want to see. How's that going to play out? What's that going to look like? In the future, I think in general we need better controls for buyers and sellers. Um, so sellers need to be comfortable that the advertisers running on their properties are ones that they're comfortable running on their properties. I think buyers need to be more comfortable with the sites that they're placing their ads on. So to do that, we do need more transparency, and we need better standards. So when I speak about standards, I mean kind of a framework or how you should approach programmatic buying, the controls you can put in place either within the technology or using third-party technologies. I think these standards should be open-sourced. So when this recent foray over YouTube in particular, one of the problems was brands didn't know where to turn to. Right? They went to their agencies, they saw us internally, they were panicked. And in reality, the industry bodies or independents can provide these standards and a place to go for brands and for publishers to understand this and understand what they can practically put in place. But today, and I think it's you know, it's easy, it's really easy to point fingers, and many people have in this situation. But sometimes you have to realise these things are broken before you can fix it. But now, you know. I don't think we can make excuses for this in the future. I think we need to be more accountable in the industry. And as I said, we need to create better standards, better controls, and open source those via the industry, industry bodies. But do you think it's going to be possible to always stay um, ahead of these sites, which, you know, thinking about extremist material, where they're always going to be trying to play the game so they can get their money. Um, I suppose it's the same challenge we face with ad fraud as well, is that, you know, there's always going to be these these companies out there um, or these groups out there who are trying to create fraudulent ad sites to steal in, impressions and generate revenue. Um, whilst we as the industry can try and clean up our game, how are we going to be able to keep up with these um, organisations who, who just don't want to play the game? How do you stay ahead of fraud when it's so fast moving and so dynamic is really challenging? And would we ever get to a place where we can absolutely guarantee 100% that every ad impression has been served in an exact location we determined? You know, unsure at this stage. So we sort of need to manage expectations as well. But we definitely need to try and strive towards that. Definitely need to allow you know, third-party companies who specialise in that in this space to evolve and succeed we need to have better standards, we need to put better pressures on publishers, such as, you know, YouTube and Facebook, who kind of aggregate content, um, user-generated content. Um, so we can, you know, each driving, time will only tell, really. But um, we've been talking very much about publishers and advertisers now, and I'd like to sort of bring in the perspective of the consumer, because particularly when we're talking about things like transparency and trust, 
It feels like over the last couple of years that the consumers are feeling that there isn't transparency and trust anymore. And I think that's evident in the rise of ad blockers. Over the last few years, we've seen ad blockers grow to around 20% of all adults. And in some uh, demographics, so young male demographics, that's as high as 80%. And that has real impacts on publishers, of course, because it means that's 80% of their available inventory that they, they can't sell. I wanted to then get your perspective on that. Do you think we've reached uh, a peak ad blocker usage? Good question. I think probably it would always continue to be um, a problem to some extent. I mean, I you know I agree that IAB had studies that showed that it was plateauing. But even this week, Google Chrome, um, there's some actually it was on the BBC today that Google Chrome may introduce an ad blocker uh, into their browser. Um, and that's primarily so that they can improve user experience by blocking poor ads and poor formats. And the way that Google Chrome will define that is by working with the Coalition for Better Ads. So if you go to betterads.org, you'll be able to see more about the framework and their initiatives. Um, but it's almost it's almost like it's an ad blocker to improve advertising in a funny way. Mm. Um, because you know the key reasons why they ad blocking becomes so prevalent is because it's really intrusive formats that take over your mobile phone or you have to wait for 10 seconds to get to the content or it's poor creative which is super irrelevant for the user they look at it and they're like why am i being serviced or it's creepy targeting where you know the information that an advertiser has or their intermediaries has on a user they just go too far and for the user, it just feels a bit too a bit too creepy. Um, so, I think I think ad blocking will always well will remain a challenge. But hopefully, this year's like you know betterads.org. Hopefully, you know, browsers like Google Chrome improving user experience. Hopefully, reduction in these poor creative and creepy targeting intrusive formats. Hopefully, we'll see ad blocking reduce but i do think there'll always be certain demographics who just feel like they just don't want to see advertising and if you're um if you are an advertiser well you don't be able to serve them in that anyway because you're just going to annoy them hmm. so you know there may have to be some work around around those certain groups now one dimension here is the relevancy um of these ads and i think we've all kind of experienced examples of it you know seeing ads that um, think we're interested in their product and it's got no significance or relevance to us. Or it is relevant to us. It's, you know, I always use the example of the um, kettle on John Lewis. You know, you go and look at a kettle on John Lewis and then that particular kettle follows you around the web um, in their retargeted ads for the next 30 days, um, you know, even though you bought the kettle. So on one hand, you've got advertisers who want to get more targeted and they want more data about the web users to be able to target them with better ads, more relevant ads, um, and they'd like to make them more relevant. But on the other hand, you've got consumers who, again, it feels that consumers are becoming more aware of their personal data and they don't really want to share that personal data with third parties. Um, do, you, do you see there being a way of squaring that sort of relationship between the sort of advertisers who want to get hold of it and the consumers who don't really want to give it away? I wrote about this a couple of years ago in that from a very high level, I think we will start to see users have greater control over how their personal data is used. Um, in 
every facet of their life, um, not just you know what we consider data targeting and marketing, um, and then potentially how they monetize that themselves and how they get paid for um, giving up their data through maybe micropayments. Um, but I, I do think you know consumers also need, need to consider what fuels lots of their services is advertising. It's a massive industry that allows them allows consumers to use things like Twitter and Facebook and search for things on the go while on their phone or allows them to watch, you know, the Champions League or BT Sport or, or whatever it might be. Um, so I do think consumers also need to be a little bit more uh, realistic and need to just be well-versed in why their data uh, is valuable and what that creates. But in the same aspect, I do think we'll start to see um, consumers take back a bit more control and have a bit of a, um, a, I guess, a better understanding of how that data is used. Yeah, it comes back to the point, I think, about transparency and trust, doesn't it? And sort of really empowering those consumers to take control of their data. In terms of the data, which is most valuable, I mean, you've, you've sat at numerous terminals buying data and looking at um, all of the various different data sources that come into a, uh, a DSP and a DMP. What, in your opinion, is, is the most valuable type of data? Could you talk us through uh, what that looks like? Really, the value is in the eye of the beholder. Um, so, for example, if you are a travel airline looking to target people who want to go to the Caribbean, an in-market holiday for the Caribbean is super high intent, and therefore that comes with a big premium. Whereas if it's a simple split of the population into male and female, well, that's less of a high intent and therefore it's kind of cheaper to buy in um, as data. I think what's really interesting from my perspective is the type of segmentation that's now being created because we have access to more and more data and interesting sort of subsets of data means that we can better understand consumers. So by that, I mean things like the type of mood they might be in or we get a better understanding of their life stage or we can better predict what they might want to do. And we do that because users are creating more and more data that we can understand every day. So to have that better profile of consumers creates better opportunities for marketing. And then when it's uh, very specific for a brand's needs or requirements, that drives price and that, that drives, you know, uh, scarcity, I mean, scarcity can drive, um, can drive yield. So um, I think you know, we've, there's, there's tons of different variations of segments and data and they're categorized in all different ways. And it's become more transparent about how they're categorized. But in general, just to reiterate my point, there's more data being used, uh, created in interesting ways which allows marketers and advertisers to better understand consumers. And could you give us maybe some examples of interesting sources of data? Um, I mean, I know, for example, that some of the publishers now are making their first party data, the data they collect about 
um, the users on their sites available as, as second party data. Um, and, you know, uh, there's there's obviously examples of the big companies like Experian as well, who have a, a range of data points about most individuals in the UK. I think they claim like 99 percent. Um, they bring that in as well. But what are the sort of the interesting sources of data that you're seeing? You know, there's so many. There's there's transaction history through uh, Visa and MasterCard. So when did someone last do something? When were they last in a bar? When were they last at a football stadium? We've got the kind of big e-commerce companies. You can understand what's the average basket value per customer. Companies like Experian, you can go, you renewed your home insurance four years, 11 months ago. You now need to renew it. I think there's 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 so much in there's so much interesting data, and brands when they start to kind of dive into it, it, it gets quite exciting because the the opportunities are almost limitless. Um, but really, it's it's trying to refine that back to okay, what what might provide value for my ambitions and, and my marketing goals, really. And I suppose that's part of the challenge as well, isn't it? Because there is a ton of data, and there's constantly new data sources coming online providing insights. But as a well, as a, a media buyer who's sitting at that trading desk trying to figure out how to generate the best return on investment for their clients, how do they know where to start looking through all those different data sources? What, what are they looking for? And, and are they testing things out and experimenting and seeing what works and then repeating? Can you talk us through that sort of process? It's a constant test and learn approach, really, which is you know, that is the best way to approach campaign trading is to you set up a strategy you see if it works if it works you expand it if it doesn't you turn it off and with programmatic you can test to you know statistical significance for relatively low volumes of money and you're you're in control of it i mean where to start when you're literally creating your campaign and there's a big box that says what data would you like to use often you would either search through the available segments by keyword so for example travel or intent or purchase or what you might do is some terminals allow you to run what we call lookalike modeling Um, and there's two ways to do that one is through indexing so you take what we call a seed audience which is something we know so for example has visited the programmaticadvisory.com in the last seven days and then we can then go, okay, of those 1,000 users, what other segments do they fall into? And then you start to see that you know, the homepage visitors index really highly into um, likes to shop at Morrison's or uh, has played football in the past two weeks. Or, you know, it, it, and that's a scientific approach, really. And that allows you to understand... Um, stuff you wouldn't know because that's the thing with data and testing you want to find out things which necessarily which aren't necessarily intuitive and testing and learning can allow you to do that i think it comes back to what we were discussing quite early on in the um in the call when we were talking about the skills which the um, media buyers need to have now and it, it, it's the words you're using sound very scientific i mean they are statistical you know that that's a science in its own right statistically significant and uh, sample sizes and sets and extrapolation all these types of things are um, a new way of well a new rigor that needs to be applied to how um, effectively marketers and advertisers use 
data. What are the metrics? What are the, the types of numbers which you think are, are the most important um, metrics to be able to assess the importance? So when you're running some of these tests and trying to evaluate the success of, of the experiments you run, are you looking for um, just simple ROI or are there other metrics along the way that you're looking at? I always get called an idealist, but in an idealist world, you're trying to measure the ad you serve back to a business outcome. So in digital, that's a bit easier. So if you're a digital-only business um, and you only sell through your website and you only serve advertising and digital, it's a bit easier to make that kind of causation between certain ad and then gone on to convert. Don't get me wrong, there's lots of complexities, but generally it's a bit easier. Whereas if you're a brand like an FMCG brand and you sell all of your products through partners, so for example like Tesco, Amazon, Walmart, etc. That's harder because the business outcome data resides in a third party and your advertising exposure or clicks or you know viewable impression, whatever it might be, exists somewhere else. So marrying the two can be really, really challenging. So what you might find for many brands is they can't solve for that. They can't bring that data set together. They use proxies. So a big proxy in FMCG particularly is reach and frequency. So there'll be loads of studies that say, for example, Gillette, if we can serve to 18 to 24 male three times a month, we can see that shifts up our product uptake. Um, so the metric there would be reach and frequency. And then you then go, okay, but in, we want to make sure they actually see the ad. So then viewability might be a KPI they use. Um, so there's a variety of KPIs that are used either directly to a business outcome or as a proxy based on data availability. Um, and that in itself is a field in marketing which is incredibly complex. It's creating these KPI frameworks and there's some incredibly smart people who can develop it. But as I said, you are always trying to get to as close as I've invested X amount in marketing instead of X amount in my business. Yeah, I think that's probably a whole nother episode of the podcast to look at yeah. attribution modelling and, and the whole sort of data science behind how we um, measure ROI. Um, but just to sort of look at then the the future of online advertising, there's there have been a number of different developments in the last 12 months, uh, you know, challenges and, and responses to those challenges. But what are a couple of the things that you're most excited about in terms of innovations in the programmatic and online space at the moment? The single most exciting thing I'm excited about is the convergence of traditional and digital channels, which you spoke about earlier, and how you can transact that by programmatic. So things like radio, out of home, TV, these channels are now becoming more one digitalized so there's digital radio digital outdoor digital tv but also whether linear or non-connected how you plan and buy those in these programmatic terminals for me is is so exciting because what you have as a brand you have marketing budget and you get x amount per year and you want to make that investment work as hard as possible and if you can get a central review on how you can allocate your dollars and you can move those dollars around based on what's working well for you, that's that's the goal, that's really the ambition. And 
these channels that can now be bought and traded programmatically um, whilst at early stages, that for me is super exciting. Um, and then just you know, a few other things such as um, you know, how to become more personalised but not creepy, header bidding, so how do publishers monetize their inventory so they're getting paid fairly, the constant tech innovation that we have in this space and how there are tech companies fulfilling gaps all the time. I mean, there's, and then there's tons of things I'm really excited about, but really the thing I get most excited about is how do we make that marketing investment deliver for uh, marketers that drive them business growth? Because marketing now should be seen as a tool for business growth, not just a cost that sits in the team in the back of the back of the office. Yeah, I think you mentioned it before. Now that we have that data coming in to show the effectiveness of the campaigns we're running, we're really able to scrutinise and hold marketing accountable for every single pound that's spent, um, which is ultimately a good thing because it makes us more effective. It, it makes um, the whole team more focused, and we're able to then show the rest of the business the impact that marketing's having. Um, just on the point you, you started off there talking about media buying and the way in which that's sort of um, evolving. I remember when I was at, at Zipcar, we brought our uh, trade desk in-house. So we actually brought someone from an agency, brought them in in-house. They were buying our media um, directly um, from uh, a terminal. We had a license with a with a DSP then as well. Um, and it's been a sort of trend over the last couple of years that certainly bigger businesses when they have uh, sufficient spend to justify that sort of investment they're bringing them in-house one that's a, a little bit of a threat to it to an agency um, but it's more cost effective for the for the brands to do that but what other threats and and how do you think agencies are responding to some of these threats i do think in housing is a genuine threat for agencies um it's still early days and you get you know progressive companies like you said like Zipcar like Netflix, like others who, who are in-housing already. I think that's one threat. I do think the management consultancies, so Accenture, PwC, EY, Deloitte, etc., are also a threat to the agencies. Um, if they decide they want to get into some of the services that agencies provide, then that will obviously cause a threat because those management consultancies have you know, uh, one seriously high relationships within existing companies above CMOs and marketers. Hmm. And two, they quite often have system integration um, practices. Um, so they're very well versed in customization of technology, uh, data handling, things that agencies are, I would say, still dipping their toe in the water of, you know, by and large, with a few outliers. Um, so I'd probably say those those two are the threats. But the one thing in my time in agencies, you can always rest assured, is uh, agencies are very innovative, um, agile, have some incredible people within them who can work out how to pivot their businesses to continue to provide value to their clients so that when that threat arises, they can kind of quash that. Um, and some agencies will struggle some will thrive 
Yeah, I think that's um, definitely right. And interestingly enough, you, you mentioned Accenture Digital. We had Amir Malik, who was the um, head of programmatic at Trinity Mirror on a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he's now moved on to Accenture Digital or Accenture Interactive rather um, to head up their internal um, sort of team of media um, buyers uh, they've obviously also bought Karmarama the creative agency end of last year and they're sort of building out that sort of function to be able to offer um, as you say at a very senior level um, just to senior level decision makers the ability to then to have all the functions of uh, uh, what we would classically think of as an advertising and media agency uh, function it's still quite early days for that whole model so maybe you know over the next couple of months try and get um, somebody from one of those organizations to explain how it's been going and, and the significance of that so just to sort of bring things to a, a bit of a, a close we, we've talked a lot about programmatic and the, the way the industry's evolved and a lot of people have moved into the programmatic industry what advice would you have for somebody who's listening to this who's maybe not working in media buying or programmatic at the moment but wants to they're, they're attracted by everything they've heard um, what advice where do they get started what should they be doing my advice would be to get hands-on early. So enrolling very much in trading or ad operations, I think it's a really good place to start. Whilst those roles sometimes aren't the most glamorous, um, but they definitely provide really good fundamentals. And from personal experience, where I've gone through a year in ad operations, two years as a campaign trader, I still use that experience today. And I think and having that level of detail is really important. Practically, you know, I've, there's plenty of events that are available, that many of which are free, which you can look at on things like meetup.com. I would say read as many publications as you can. Uh, the programmaticadvisory.com, we have a blog. We also run training sessions. We launched a mentorship program last year, which was a year-long program for five selected people. Due to the success of that, we're going to find ways to do shorter sessions of the mentorship program maybe three month or six month programs get your hands dirty get, get in the detail as early on as possible how can we stay in touch with with you and find out more about what the programmatic advisory does is there a website and twitter handle we should uh, be following yeah so the pro the programmatic advisory.com we have blogs and white papers which we release via our site at tp advisory on twitter and if you connect with me on linkedin I'm fairly prolific at posting and sharing stuff, so definitely feel free to add to me and uh, you can see my, my kind of post on a frequent basis. Great. And yeah, I can attest to some really useful links that you've shared very frequently on LinkedIn, which are all really useful reading. Well, Wayne, we've talked a lot about the whole history of programmatic, what programmatic means, how it's been changing the world of publishers and the opportunities for advertisers and marketers to take advantage of the technology and, and the new thinking and the new rigour that dealing with data involves. It's been fascinating to, to get your perspective and there's lots of great takeaways that I know people can take back to their businesses and apply. So I'd like to thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on the Clixie Digital Marketing Podcast. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for having me. Find more episodes at clickzcom forward slash podcasts or follow me on Twitter at Tim for Change. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ and don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. 
ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.